You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of his word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Good morning, TFC. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 50. Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 50. No matter how long you've been a Christian or in the church, I wouldn't advise you to just sit there and just listen without your Bibles open. If you're doing that, you're probably not growing and learning with the text. Um, I, I want to encourage you to beg God to use his word as you look at it in your life, in, in your heart, and that you would really see the realities of his word, of his text, as you follow along. Allow them to penetrate your heart. Don't assume that you know what's in there and don't uh, think that it's unimportant. Engage your mind, your heart within the text, and God will grow you. He will use even the smallest details to change you, to conform you into his image. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and, uh, and spirit and joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And so more than anything, we need the Bible. Uh, it, by his spirit, he does his work in our lives in a way that only he can do it. Today, we're going to talk about greatness. We're going to talk about greatness. We're going to talk about what it means to be great. Uh, this is not just any description of greatness. This is God's definition of greatness. From what we would naturally and culturally define as great, Jesus is redefining Greatness. He's redefining it. Uh, this is the kingdom definition of what it means to be great. The kingdom definition. You see, our world has its own definition of greatness. We have our own ideas about what greatness looks like. We have uh, the, the own, our, our own questions about how we can become great. Yet the question is, does our definition of greatness align with God's definition of greatness? We aspire to greatness in the world, in our lives. Sometimes we feel like we've arrived at greatness, that we're great in comparison to everyone else. We feel a sense of being greater. We even can maintain a low-level arrogance about our own greatness. Uh, we think we're great because we're wealthier than most, or our business is better than most, or we're better looking than most, or we've received more public recognition than most. We have better jobs than most. We have more skills than most. We have better opinions than most. We have better family than most. We take better social media pictures than most. I have a better idea uh, of, of various things and how things in the world should function than most. I have better solutions than most, better judgments. I can see what's really going on in the hearts of people and the lives of people. I'm more fit than most. I'm smarter than most. I'm more organic than most. Uh, and the list goes on. I'm more famous than most, or I have more knowledge than most. And so this is what we would describe as greatness in the world that we live in based upon however we are defining or valuing greatness. But the issue here is twofold. First, those definitions of greatness always come in the comparison of oneself to others. Those definitions always come in the comparison of oneself to others. 
The world's definition of greatness always involves comparison. This is just inherently true of the world's definition of greatness, probably of our definition of greatness. For example, I love the NBA and the season's back, and it's inside what they're calling the Orlando bubble. It's in Disney World, um, and it's in the Disney World wide world of sports. The bubble concept is to prevent any positive COVID testings. It's a great concept, and uh, thought that maybe we should put our church and all of our people inside a bubble. But when you watch these these players inside this bubble, there's no question as you watch a player like LeBron James that he is just great. He's just great at what he does. Now, inevitably, what we mean when we say that he's great, at least to some degree, is that he's better than most. He's better than most of the other players. Typically, the world's definition comes with comparison. That is not how Jesus' definition of greatness um, is seen. He, he does not define greatness in terms of comparison. And so we're going to see that. But the other issue as we talk about the world's definition of greatness is that the world's definition of greatness values what Jesus doesn't value. And so it compares which Jesus doesn't do, and it values items that Jesus doesn't value in relation to greatness. The issue here is that none of the things I listed above, job, wealth, popularity, more crowd, career success, viewed in a positive light by others, etc. None of those things are involved in how Jesus defines greatness. None of those things are part of his definition. So that might be how the world defines greatness. That might be how you would define greatness, but that's not how God and the Bible define greatness. We must align our thinking with the Bible. And by faith, not other way ar- any other way around, we must align our thinking with God's and the Bible's. And by faith, uh, not the other way around, not aligning God and his opinions and his word to, to meet our opinions. Proverbs 3, 5 through 8 says this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. And this certainly applies to true greatness and its definition and pursuing it in the eyes of what's right in in terms of God's value system. The question is, are you pursuing greatness in the way that the world defines it? Or by faith, are you pursuing greatness in the way that God defines it. He is calling you to pursue greatness, but he's calling you to pursue it in such a way that he sees as great. And so after today, my hope is that as we've looked at this passage, you're going to pursue a life of greatness in terms of what God defines it as. And we're going to see how this works. This is what we're after today. And we're going to see how this is connected to God's greater story. This isn't just an applicational, hey, how do we become great? This is very connected to what Jesus is doing in light of the greater story of all of history. It's also very connected to his messianic ministry. And it's connected to what he is calling of his apostles and his disciples. And so this is connected to the greater story and to his ministry, and he is calling us to be people of greatness in his eyes. Let's pray, let's read our verses, and then let's ask God to move mightily as he calls us to greatness. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today, and I pray by your mercy and by your grace, God, that you would show us in your word what it means to be great that you would help us to understand rightly your definition of greatness, that we would pursue it with all of our might because it is what you want us to pursue and call us to pursue. Help us to forfeit the world's definition and to even be opposed to it. Help us to be an anomaly in the world, one who is holy and set apart. Help us not to succumb to the world's definition of greatness, but help us to to, to love you with all of our hearts and so trust you that we would align ourselves with you and your word. 
God, we pray that you would teach us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's read Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 48. I'm sorry, 46 through 50. Verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives uh, me, uh, me receives him who sent me. Sorry. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. And so we're seeing verses 46 through 50, and today we're covering verses 46 through 48, part one of Jesus redefining greatness. And so as we see this passage, we're still in the greater narrative of God's redemptive story. And so we're going to talk about these verses, but first, let's see kind of where we're at. Therefore, even in Luke's account, within the greater story, namely the period of the Messiah coming to earth, more specifically verses 46 through 48 in chapter 9, although this is a short and familiar section, it's a very significant turning point in Jesus' life in ministry and therefore in the greater storyline of God. These will be the last two things that happen in Galilee. The last two things that happen in Galilee. That's what Luke tells us. Jesus starts his ministry at the time of his baptism. He's baptized in the Jordan River. Then he goes south. He spends some time in Judea. Then he heads to Galilee. And that's where we've been for a while. He spent a year and a half or so in Galilee. And think of all that's happened during this time in his ministry in Galilee. Think about everything that we've seen during this time. Not just events, but also things that he's established as permanent patterns during this time. This is a significant time in the life of God's greater story. Jesus' ministry in the Galilean area like the establishment of his followers taking his message. That's established here in this section, in this season. And that still stands for us today in the Great Commission. Think about the fact that he's established his agents to be the ones who's reached the lost world, to share the gospel, and to establish here what he has established for all of time to advance his church. It's amazing. Now, what's going on here uh, and what's going to happen in verse 51, if you look at your text in verse 51, it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So if you look with me in your text, verse 51 Following the, the section that we are in, we will cover half of it today and half of it next week. Well, verse 51, which follows that, is where he, it, it, Luke tells us the days drew near for him to be taken up. His time with the, with the cross and the resurrection and the ascension is drawing near, and therefore he is setting his face to go to Jerusalem. This is telling us, Luke is telling us that he's going to set his face in verse 51 to go to Jerusalem. Now, verse 50 in Luke's gospel is his last of his Galilean ministry. This is the last of it. And this should give us a lot of clarity of his timeline. It should be incredibly interesting to us. Because think about the, the pattern in which has been established up until this point. It's very logical, but it helps us to make sense of all of this. We had the birth narratives, the childhood testimonies of his Messiahship. We had the baptism as a testimony to the same, as well as the commencement of his earthly ministry. Then at, and that was about at age 30. Then Jesus went south for a very short time in Judea, and then he heads up north to Galilee. He spends a year and a half or so ministering in the region of Galilee. All of this time, as we have discussed, he was spent establishing that he indeed was the Messiah. All of this time up until this point is for the purpose of establishing that he's the Christ. Before his earthly ministry starts in, uh, in his 30s and his baptism, that's the testimony from Luke that he's the Messiah. And all the witnesses amongst his childhood and his, 
and his, uh, and his younger years. And then in his ministry in Galilee thus far has been again to establish that he is a Messiah. This is not boring. This should not bore us. You should not think that this is irrelevant to you. Um, this is how Jesus chooses to begin his narrative of the Christ on earth, his life, his ministry, establishing that he's the Christ, he's the chosen one, he's God's anointed king, he's the fulfillment of all of God's promises and the Old Testament prophecies to reconcile God and man, man to God. And at this point, at the end of this, the question should be, just as the question was posed to Peter, do you believe this? Do you believe in who I am? That's what should be asked at the end of this section before we move into verse 51, which we will do. And as we saw in verses 18 through 22 with Peter's confession, it has been settled. He's the Christ. He's God's Christ. Now, think about this. After that section, after that confession by Peter, summarizing verse 1 through in Luke all the way on until Peter's confession in 9, 18 through 22. That whole section is summarized by Peter's confession. And the very next thing that Jesus says after that confession is, listen now, after we've established that I'm the Messiah, you will understand that I'm going to have to suffer. I'm going to die. In the apostles' eyes, the very next thing Jesus requires them to understand is what the Christ must suffer, what he must die. And as Matthew states, he says this in Matthew 16, 21, for that, from that time forward, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, he must suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, he must be killed, and on the third day be raised. That's what comes next. He's the Messiah. He's got to die. And so the progression is very simple thus far. Birth, childhood testimonies, ministry testimony, being settled amongst the apostles. He's the Christ. And then him spending time on telling them of his coming suffering and his coming rejection. Very logical order. Now, in just a few verses, starting in verse 51, he will begin the journey to Jerusalem. That's what he's going to do. That's what comes next in the progression. He's going to now begin the journey towards the suffering, towards the rejection, towards, the, the, towards Jerusalem. He's the Christ. He's got to suffer. We are going. But as this journey to Jerusalem happens, which again will take place, so you know, all the way until chapter 19, verse 44, Okay, that's what this journey will consist of. We're starting the journey in verse 51, and we will take that journey all the way to 1944. This will be a long journey, but my goodness, will this be a moving journey. This will be an incredible journey, which I'll tell you why. Because what's going to happen along this journey, which is the next step in the progression, as he journeys to Jerusalem, this next process in his ministry, he is going to be teaching his apostles to follow him. So now he's the Christ. It's established. He's got to suffer. It's established. We're going to Jerusalem. That's what's coming. And during that time, he is going to be teaching his apostles now to follow him. So as we talked about last week, he's going to be teaching them to live by faith according to his words. Said more practically, on this journey, it's going to be a time of training the twelve. That's what's going to happen. The entire time, it will be a time of training these 12 apostles. The whole time. Nine, Luke 9, 51 through 19, 44. As one pastor says, during this period, you're going to go to the school the disciples went to. And Jesus is going to be your teacher. And you're going to be discipled by him. That's what's happening from 951 to 19, verse 44. You will be discipled by the teacher. You will go to class with the disciples. He will teach you 
now how to follow him. This season that we will spend after these last two verses in the Galilean events will be every week receiving practical teaching from Jesus, training up his disciples, discipleship 101. And of course, that's been happening already and him proving who he is, telling them of his suffering, calling them to follow him. But now as they follow him, he will disciple them closely and he will disciple us if you'll also journey with him to Jerusalem. So then after that, the progression will go. As we make it past 1944, he will progress into Jerusalem, eventually to his death, resurrection, and ascension. So you should have a good idea with that summary of what the purpose of this book is, what the structure is, what the phases of his life and ministry are. And so now at this point, Although the major concentration of his teaching is coming in just a few verses once we get to 1951 and beyond, or 9, sorry, 951 and beyond, Jesus has already taught them so much and he's going to continue. The discipleship process has already started. And here, what he's teaching them about in our passage today is humility, which is true greatness. That's what he's teaching them about now. And he's going to continue teaching them until the end. Individual humility, verses 46 through 48, which is the first part of our passage, and group humility in verses 49 through 50. Individual pride, 46 through 48. Group pride, verses 49 through 50. Individual humility in our hearts, understanding what the Lord really sees as great. Verses 46 through 48, group humility, the collective cliquish pride and selfishness, and laying that down, verses 49 through 50. This is what he's going to teach us. Now, as we cover these verses, verses 46 through 48 today, we're going to see three points. And the Lord, as he works this humility in us, and Lord knows we need it, he's going to give us three points, and he needs to make us different and as we see this progression, this progression will be laid out in a simple three points, which we're going to see as the argument, as Jesus' assessment of the argument, and then of the adjustment that they must make to their thinking. But as he does this, what he's going to do and what he's going to help us do is to make us different from what comes natural. This is the main focus, the foundation of sanctification. It's humility. This is what you and I need most in our lives and what we most need to get rid of in our lives is pride, conceit. That's the foundation to us living for ourselves, pride. The foundation of us living for ourselves is pride. And Jesus calls us to the exact opposite, to die to ourselves and to live for him. In the flesh, this is what we most uh, desire and what we will most gravitate towards rather than living by faith in the Christ. Humility is what he's calling of us. Although, if you think about this, how disgusting and unfounded and delusional pride is, I mean, gosh, it stands on absolutely no reality, right? We, we gravitate towards it. And Jesus is aiming to get this out of his disciples and his apostles. And so, before we dive into it, I, I had a few thoughts and a bit of a side note, as the Bible tells us, if you think about a few ways in which you can get rid of, begin to get rid of your pride, I, I can think of three antidotes to pride. Three ways in which we can get rid of that that the Bible projects, and then we'll look at the verses. Number one, look more repeatedly at God. If you want an antidote to pride, look more repeatedly at God. Look more at God. Look at God more. In the revelation of himself in Scripture, if you look at God, pride will diminish. That's what happens in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord, the reality of the Lord. Think about if you saw God in all of his fullness right now. And then how would you feel about yourself? And so he saw him sitting upon his throne, and this is the characteristics of God. He was high. He was lifted up. And the train of his robe, just the train of it, filled the temple. And above him stood seraphim, and each had six wings. With two, 
he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy. The, the, the symbol of completeness being repeated three times is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth, the entire earth is covered with his glory. Is, is the entire earth covered with your glory or with my glory? Absolutely not, but it's covered with his. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of, peop of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes, here's the reason why I can say that, because I have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Church, you want to begin to diminish your pride, take a great look at God and do so repeatedly. Number two, Gain an awareness of your own inability to contribute to your own salvation. If you want to see your pride diminish, go away. Gain an awareness of your inability, the inability that you had or have to contribute to your own salvation. Think about this. You have contributed nothing to your salvation. And let that humble you because he did it. He pursued you. He came after you and he did all the work to save you. That should humble you. Think about the extensivity of your sin. What did you contribute to your salvation? That should humble you quick. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31 says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring nothing things, bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. You became, who became to us the wisdom of God. That's who Jesus is, the wisdom of God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let no one who boasts, or let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's our only boast. That'll get rid of our pride quick. Number three, if we want to see our pride diminish, ask the Lord to bring humility through experience. If you, want, if you want humility to come and pride to go, ask the Lord. Be so ra radical and daring and bold to pray that the Lord would bring about humility in your life through his sovereign experiences that he brings into your life. The Lord works in using his word combined with his trials to make us more humble. In America, we are proud because we don't face persecution. Our lives are not threatened. Neither is our faith. And we are comfortable. It's hard to make oneself humble. Therefore, the Lord brings about trials, sufferings, hardships, difficulties, difficult seasons, struggles to bring about humility in us, teaching us how to not bow, or bow up in pride, but how to bow down in humility, teaching us through suffering. It's easy to be proud until the doctor says that you have cancer, and I'm sorry. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, So to keep me, this is Paul's example, from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. So we will see in our story today, as we've just looked at a few ways in which the Lord brings about humility in our lives, we will see in the story as the Lord gets us to a place of humility, true, as, tr true greatness. Three aspects. As the story unfolds, we're going to see the argument, we're going to see the assessment, we're going to see the adjustment. And he aims to do what we just talked about. Bring about humility and get rid of our pride. To bring about true greatness in our lives. Because he loves us. So, let's begin. It's a very short section, so it'll be easy, but it's very, very encouraging. Number one, what we see in the process of the story is the argument. The argument. In verse 46, we begin with the argument. 
Here's what he says, Luke writes. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. We find ourselves at the point here in Capernaum, which is the home base, the HQ of Jesus' ministry at this point in Galilee. We're in a house. How do we know we're in a house? Well, Mark gives us clarity about this scene, which using Mark and Matthew can help us to really understand what's fully going on. Mark 9 says this, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? That's Jesus asking his disciples. But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be the last of all and a servant of all. And he took a child and put them in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus is sitting in the house in Capernaum, probably with Peter and his family, and the rest of the apostles, and he's talking about what they talked about, we're talking about on the road. He brings it up and says, what were you all talking about? Maybe they didn't think he heard, but he did. And he's asking, what were you guys discussing? And as they're sitting in the house, and they kept silent for a little bit, and they were embarrassed because what they were arguing about with one another was about who was the greatest. Now, this should make you laugh a little bit. I guess it probably shouldn't make you laugh, but Jesus just literally told them that they were going to have to die. That they're going to have to die for his name. And all of them will, actually, except for John. John will be exiled into the island of Patmos. And so they're all going to die. They're going to do it for his glory, but he just talked about how they were going to have to lose themselves to follow him. And what they are doing as they walked along the road is arguing about who among them is the greatest. The very opposite that Jesus is calling them to. So Luke writes, as we walk through verse 46, very simply, the verse is very easy to understand. An argument arose among them. So an argument arose. An argument, a quarrel between them, a disagreement. They disagreed about what they were discussing. What was the disagreement about? It was about who's the greatest. But it says the argument arose. It's the picture that it started for no, from nothing. There was no argument prior, nor did there need to be one. But it became something. They started it. It arose among them. Among who? Who's them? Them, those ones in which the argument arose among were the apostles, the ones God chose. And so we can see even the ones in which he chose have got things backwards here. The ones who believed, the ones who were on mission for him, the ones he called, the ones he saw, the ones who saw him, the ones, some of them, three of them, who were on the mount with him and saw him in his glory. And then all of them whom are going to follow with Jesus as we begin in verse 51 to 19, verse 44, all the way to Jerusalem. They're going to all be with him. This is the group that's arguing about who is the greatest. Even the disciples act like this. And he wants to change them, and he wants to change us. So an argument arose among them, and the very argument was about which of them was the greatest. Now, what this is inherently doing is it's causing disunity among them, which, by the way, is always what pride will do. It will take a unified group that accomplishes much for the kingdom, that can accomplish much together for the kingdom, and it will disunify the group. It will cause them to be isolated, and it will cause them to be about themselves. And this is what it's doing. It's taking each one of them and individualizing them as to which one is great rather than unifying them to accomplish much for the one who really is great, which is Jesus. 
And so as we watch this out of this group, it becomes about them. In this moment, what's happening is it becomes about them. The mission becomes about them. Jesus becomes about them. Their following of him becomes about them. It doesn't become about the mission or the, or the group or the whole or the kingdom. It's about them. It's not about the Messiah at this point. And so this is what will happen. And this is pride. This is pride what is happening among this group. And see, this isn't the only time that this is going to happen. First of all, we see the account of the same exact story in Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 6. I'll read it. At the time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of him and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like a child, you will never enter, enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So there's the becoming like and there's the receiving of. We only see the receiving of in Luke, in Luke chapter 9. But whoever causes one of these little ones to sin, he says, and, and the ones who believe in me, it would be better for him to have a great millstone around, fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the deep depth of the sea, which is a scary idea. You can look up the picture of a millstone if you wanted to. And this is what he would say is you cause another one to sin would be better that you had one of those tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. So Jesus is very serious when he talks. If we were to notice, what's the tone of Jesus? It's not chipper and it's not flippant and it's not levity. That's not Jesus's tone ever. It's always serious. It's always intentional and it's always intense. Always. He loves and he has great joy in his heart for the Father, but he is never not taking things seriously. Matthew 23, 11 is another instance that we're going to see. And Jesus says, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now what we're seeing in Luke chapter 9 is this. They're arguing about who's the greatest. And Jesus is going to show them the right way about what greatness means. He's going to make them humble. But what we can see is this is not an uncommon thing. This will happen again. Because this is what we fight for most as disciples. In Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 27, which at this point from, then, from now till then will be uh, many months from now at this point. In Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 27. Because we only have about a year or, or a little bit more left uh, of this. And so what happens in, in just a few months later Again, Luke tells us, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. I mean, this seems like he's just repeating this story. He's not. This is another happening. And this is in Luke chapter 22, as near the end of the book. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over those who are called over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater one? Uh, who is the greater? One who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves. He's great because he serves. This is month, months later. And even if we want to see the extensivity of this argument and how long it will last, probably because of of being maybe more near to Jesus, look at the mother of James and John and what she requests of Jesus in Matthew 20, 20 through 22. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before Jesus, she asked him for something. And Jesus said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, Say that my two sons, the two sons of mine, will sit, one at your right and one at your left, in your kingdom. This pride is so extensive that even their mother is coming to, to push them to the front of the, of the bus. And Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. It's actually the opposite. 
Are they able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Are they going to be able to suffer and be last and serve as much as I'm going to be able to? That's who's going to be really great. And so what we're going to see, even throughout this book and throughout this narrative, is that Jesus is calling them to humility and their propensity is towards pride. And they have to redefine what they see as great. Now, why is this happening? Well, one of the reasons is because of the normative nature of this idea in their culture. Think about the Pharisees. Think about the rabbis. Think about the Jewish religion and culture. Culturally, what is extremely important is for one to be great, especially the young men. And so this has been true of all of what we've seen from the religious leaders up until this point. Greatness in the terms, in the eyes of society. Greatness, kingship, lordship, uh, uh, very great positions of authority. And they're acting like the world. The apostles are acting like the world. And, and oh, how similar for us. Our culture promotes this. The culture that we live in, let's pursue greatness. Because that's what everybody else is pursuing. That's what the world is pursuing. And that's what I should live for, just like everybody else is living for. And let me try to be the greatest. Let me try to get to the front. Let me try to win. And I'll keep Jesus with me because I'll be a Christian uh, great one. But I'll still pursue it in the way that the world determines. Ecclesiastes says, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. This has been the culture to pursue greatness in the eyes of the world since the time of Jesus and now here. This is the culture we live in. Who is the greatest? I'm the greatest. Let me flaunt it. Let me post it. Let me show it. Only things about myself. Let me just continue to show how great we are. Me, myself, my family. Let me post everything about me. Let me show wonders and signs about me as I walk along my life, as I live my life. Let me show how great I am, how wealthy I am, how popular and famous I am, which is the very essence of the opposite reason to which why, why, why God created us. Even though everything was given to us for the very opposite reason to show how great, set apart, glorious God is, that's what it means to glorify him, to show God is the supreme treasure of the universe, displaying how great, satisfying, enjoyable he is. We pursue the exact opposite, which is why this is so serious. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says this, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. You know what that means is when you eat, you should eat in such a way that says, God's better than my food. When you drink, you should drink in such a way that says, God is better than my drink. And whatever you do, that means whatever you do, you should say and show and share, display and savor God as greater than anything else you do in any other category. Do it all for the glory of God means show he is greater than all of it. And here they're saying, how great are we? The world we live in promotes this. They live for the opposite reason. And Jesus is calling his apostles and us to be very different. You know, when I first, um, when Casey and I were planning on being married and we were engaged and we were thinking about what we were going to do for our future and I was in ministry at that point, um, and we thought we were going to end up on the mission field. Our plan was to go there and to live on the mission field and to share the gospel with, with people in, in different cultures and different language. And one of the reasons why I stayed in America was because of one time I was spending time with God. I can remember it like it was yesterday. I was sitting at my kitchen table. And I read 2 Timothy chapter 3, which, by the way, has become one of my favorite books in all of the Bible. Casey and I memorized the entire book during our first year of marriage. 
And we still repeat it and can still repeat most of it probably by heart. And I read this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. It says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Avoid them. We should avoid those people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray with various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. And when I read that, I said, that's America. I got to stay. That might be true about every other nation. But I know that that is true of the nation we live in, of the culture that we live in. I said, I want to stay because that's the culture. That's the culture I grew up in. It's a culture I know. And that's the issue. And I want to stay. This is pride. This is showing ourselves to be great, the very culture that we live in. And you want to know what I saw as the solution to that issue? Well, it's the solution that God puts forth in that, same, that very same chapter in 2 Timothy. The solution is, and hear clearly, the solution is to that culture, the Word of God. That's the solution. That's why I stayed and that's why I do what I do because that's the only solution and I do it with the deepest conviction because this is the remedy. The word of God, the word of God, the word of God, the word of God, the word of God. That's the remedy because he goes on after that section in describing the culture, he says this, Paul says to Timothy, you, however, Timothy, have followed my teaching, the teaching that we now know as the Bible. You followed my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, all of which we see as an example from Paul in the Bible. My persecutions and sufferings that we hear about in the Bible that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me, that we read about those rescues in the Bible. And indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse. If you live like this from the word of God in the face of the culture that we've just seen, you're going to face persecution. Evil people and impostors are going to go on from bad to worse. They're going to deceive and they're going to be being deceived themselves. Here's what he says in verse 14, though. But as for you, continue in what you have learned about the faith, and I firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it. And here's what the result will be. Here's, the, here's the, what Timothy must stand upon. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. That's the scriptures. Which are able to make you wise for salvation. That's what will keep you, Timothy, from that culture. That's what will keep you from what we just saw. The scriptures, the sacred writings that are able to make you wise for salvation. Make you wise. Don't live like that. Live like this. Don't believe that. Don't trust in that. Trust in me through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on, verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped, for every good work, that's the solution, the word of God. And so, that's the culture, but they need to listen to Jesus. That's our culture, but we need to listen to Jesus. 
They need his words. They need his definition. And we too need his words, his definition. We need to live by his words to remedy our pride and our misunderstanding of greatness. So they're arguing about who's the greatest, and it was culturally accepted as it is now. And you might say, well, I don't argue this. I never say that. Well, how about in your head? And how about in your heart? Who's the greatest among all of us? As you scroll through the social media, why are they greater than me? You're still thinking about your own greatness. Or why am I greater than them? Or I look at how I am greater than them. Or yeah, that's a good picture, but I've got a better one. They've got a great life, but I've got a better one. Or they've got a good opinion, but I've got a better one. Living a life based upon the false foundations, thinking you're something great because of fill in the blank. Income, career, mostly common in America. Wealth. This is not Jesus' assessment of greatness. That's their argument. And my encouragement moving forward here is to live radical enough to think how Jesus does. To live radically enough to assess true greatness the way Jesus does. That might make you unpopular and that might make you backwards in the eyes of the world. But you will live by the measurements of the kingdom. And that's what's important. So, what we see so far in our passage is number one, the argument. And number two, what we see is the assessment. Verse 47a, the assessment. Let's look at it. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts. That's it. That's the assessment. They're arguing. They've argued. And Jesus is assessing the reasoning of their hearts for the argument. And very simply here, this is not a long point, but we must point out that Jesus makes an assessment of their hearts as they give, as he discusses or they give testimony to or he saw and witnessed their arguments. He assesses their hearts and it's not a good assessment. They don't pass the test. What's the assessment? Very simple. Pride. That's the assessment. Pride. Wrong motives. Hearts that are not meaning what he means when they say great. Hearts that are not wanting what he wants when they say great. Hearts that are not about me and the kingdom. Hearts that are not about trusting me and my words. Hearts that are not about fulfilling my words and producing fruit and having faith and laying down our lives for others. That's not the heart when they say great. That might seem obvious to us, but Jesus makes it clear. He's assessing the heart. Jesus is watching, and it's not what he defines as great. It's not what he means as great. Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart, and I test the mind. It's not a heart that's accepting God's word, laying down a life. It's the opposite. It's the one that's pursuing their, or assessing their own greatness in the pursuit of themselves and their own lives. That's the assessment. Jesus could tell what their hearts were. So then what we see is number three, our last point, the adjustment. We then see the adjustment. Verse 47 B through 48, and it reads this. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Here he's adjusting their thinking. Let's talk about this for a, 
for just a moment. He's redefining greatness. He's calling them to humility. That's what he's going to do now in verses 47b through 48. Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, that's the assessment. He says, now what we're going to do is we're going to take this as a teaching opportunity to teach you what true greatness is and what it isn't and to tell you how to assess it and to show you what I value. So he takes a child, it says, uh, he, uh, seeing or knowing what's in their hearts, he took a child and put him by his side. He took a child from these people, from among the, the people, probably somebody in Peter's family, a child in Peter's family in the house. And he says to them, Jesus uses this opportunity with this child to teach them. Here's an opportunity. He says, whoever receives this child, whoever receives this child, he's saying whoever embraces, or cares for, allows to come around, feeds, assists, look out, looks out for. It's probably, again, a child in Peter's family, in Peter's house. Whoever receives a child like this, and we saw in the other count, who even becomes like a child. Right, which makes sense because children accept other children. So now, why did he use a child? The question can be, why did he use a child? Well, there's a lot of reasons here, but what was the picture that he wanted to use here? Why didn't he use, you should ask these questions. Why didn't he use a slave? Why didn't he use a prisoner? Why did he use a child? I could see him using those other things. And why the idea about embracing? Why do you say when you embrace this child? I think he uses a child here because to be a child is to be in the most needy position possible. There is only receiving when you're a child. You, all you do is receive. There is the inability to care for yourself, comprehend the world, or contribute to society whatsoever. They are the lowest on the totem pole in most societies, especially historical Jew Jewish society. They are in the neediest position possible. All they need, all they have is to be taken care of. They need to be taken care of constantly. Therefore, to receive a child is to perhaps most purely love for the survival of, for the future of, for the hope of, for the joy of, for the strength of, for the blessing of another person. Most purely giving and rarely, if at all, receiving anything in return. If you live like that, if you love like that, if you serve like that, selflessly, gently, lowly, nothing too low, no one too low for you to embrace out of a heart of love and genuineness, wanting good for them, even though they may not understand what you're doing, even though they may not be able to do anything for you in return, even though they may not ever fully appreciate your care, but simply because you want their good and their future. And at times it may be inconvenient and chaotic and needy, and also that you would be in a place of even learning from them, humble. You can learn at any time because they are even teaching you. You receive them and you watch them and you even learn from them and in their innocence. And you search for it like gold because knowing your own true state and like a child, being like a child, as we saw in Matthew chapter 18, not only receiving them but becoming like them. And that's what I mean by learning. Or receiving, Ch children receive other children because they're in the same level. He's saying that, that will be who's great. He says in verse 47b, he took a child, Luke says, and put him by his side. And he said to them, whoever receives this child, but he also adds, in my name. Now, here's where we really understand what he means here about true greatness. This is going to close us out. He says, in my name. 
to show the love of God. This is not just receiving a child, but it's doing so in Christ's name. Because Christ said so and for Christ's glory. And to show Christ to this child. To show the love of God. To glorify the love of Christ. And as an extension of the love of Christ. Because Christ has said to live like this. Whoever receives this child in my name. Because I said so and for my own glory. He says receives me. So this is important. Not that Jesus is benefiting from you serving this child as though he needs something and therefore declares you as great. If you live like that, whoever lives like that is great because they have earned it somehow. Wow, they are really lowly, therefore they are great. They have earned their greatness. That's not what he's even saying here. He is calling for humility, but because humility exemplifies faith in him. You only live humbly if you believe Jesus' words. You don't live humbly if you don't believe them. It doesn't make any sense. It's opposite of what the world says. And so he says, if you live like that, if you receive this child in my name and you do that, what are you essentially doing? You are essentially receiving me. You're receiving my words. You're receiving what I say, and you're receiving who I am. You have and are receiving my words, my ways. You believe in my words. You've believed in my ways. You have faith in my words. As we've discussed last week, you are choosing and willing to follow my ways. When it seemed like the opposite that the world would do or say as greatness, you're trusting my words over the world's. As to what a greatness is. And you're pursuing humility, which is opposite, the very opposite, the essential opposite of what the world says. You're loving and you're laying down your life for those who have nothing and need everything. In Jesus' name, to his honor, because of him who said to do this. And though they don't know it, yet this will be the example that they follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Because Jesus has come to lay down his life. At the cross for people who are only in need. That's what we call total depravity. Jesus does this. We are only in spiritual need. We have nothing spiritually to contribute whatsoever. No, nothing to offer. We are totally deprived, unable to seek for God. No righteousness of our own. Nothing to contribute. No ability. No holiness. Not even the realization of our need. We don't even know what we don't know or what we don't have. We're literally lost, deaf, mute, aimlessly walking astray over cliffs and, and through deserts. And God, in his kindness, makes manifest his appointed Christ, who was the fulfillment of his plan before the beginning of time, so that his son, God, the Christ himself, to awaken our hearts, comes and shows us our sin, our need for him, and redeems us. And so we're following in his steps when we live like that. Whoever lives like this doesn't just isn't just great because, wow, look how humble they are. It's the one who then is obviously receiving Jesus and his ways. To live like this, to love like this, makes it clear that you believe Christ is Lord. Jesus is saying, if you accept this child, you accept me. For example, if you accept my words as your pastor, it's a reflection that you've received me as your pastor. If you receive a principal's words, it's a reflection that you receive him as your principal. If you receive a boss's words, it's a reflection that you've received your boss. If you receive this child, you're saying in your heart that you receive Jesus in his ways because if you believe this, you believe the Christ. It directly coincides with John 14 where he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now, he takes it one step further and he says this, if you receive me, you receive my father. You receive me, you receive my Father. And therefore, therefore, if you have trusted our words, if you live in love like this, and you have received me and my Father, you're great. You're great because you're in the kingdom of God. That's why you're great. That's what he's moving towards here. This is the progression of these words. This is how the interconnectedness of thought is working here and connectors 
are working here in this sentence. The one who is great is not just simply the one who loves and is lowly, although that is part of it. It's just a reflection that you've received his words. And therefore, you are great because you have received his words. So therefore, at the end, who is the least among you is, also, is the one who is great. So because if you're lowly and you receive it, you've trusted in Christ, you've trusted in the Father, and then that's the one who is great. Now, what's wonderful here, the last thing I'll point out is he doesn't say he's the one who is the greatest. So he moves from a comparison to it doesn't matter regarding the comparison. He just said, this is the one who is great. The one who's in my kingdom is great. Not the greatest. Take the comparison out of the equation. I'm teaching you just simply how to be great in my eyes, in God's eyes. This is how God defines greatness. This is humility. It's not earning, but evidence that you've received him and you've received his father and you will be great. My encouragement to you is that you would spend your life seeking to be great in God's eyes. That means trusting his words by faith in the way that you love and lay down your life as evidence that you've trusted him and trusted his father and then you are in the kingdom of God and you are truly great. That's your identity. Let's live like that and let's trust his words in this way. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we ask that you would use these words for your glory and your kingdom to make us a people who are great. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.